welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Molly O'Brien. And this is We Pod Econo, an Our Band Could Be Your Life miniseries. We're taking a journey through Michael Azarad's chronicle of the 1980s American underground rock scene, continuing today with Chapter 2, The Minutemen. Forged from the best friendship and creative union of self-identified, quote, corn dogs from San Pedro, Mike Watt and D. Boone, the Minutemen fused idiosyncratics, angular and funky punk tunes with fiercely proletarian values into the band that could be your life. The band made themselves legends in a short career marked by prodigious output and prodigious touring, but cut tragically short from the death of D. Boone. And today we'll be talking all things Minutemen, jamming Econo, gigs, flyers, merch, and more through Chapter 2 of Michael Azarad's Our Band Could Be Your Life. But first, let's introduce our guests. They are the operators of the Chicago-based Houseu Mountain label and two-thirds of the band Goodwill Smith. It's Max Allison and Doug Kaplan. Welcome to the show, guys. What's up, man? Hey, thank you for having us. Hello, hello. Yeehaw. Welcome to the show. Chapter two. So just by way of furthering the introduction, uh, Max and Doug, I know from way back in college radio days, uh, and while I went off to be a media shithead in New York, they kicked around and started a dang tape label and have been generating all sorts of uh, cool, weird music out of Chicago for the last few years. And I just saw Max tweeting about Mike Watts' internet radio show the other day and realized that who could be better to talk about this pairing than two best buddies who are also label mates, label owners, and everything. So, uh, you know, that's Max and Doug to me. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess I'm glad that the, 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 like the Watt radio show like reconnected this this connection in your brain because that show like has just been a great like thing to zone out to and also like reinvigorates my like love for the Mike Watt, like kind of like underground, like network slash his personal taste, which is like very diverse and crazy for sure. And, you know, he talks to a bunch of our buds. Like he has episodes with our friend, like Dustin Wong and, uh, Riley Walker and, uh, Ren container had an episode and everyone, he's just like, tell me about how you started playing music. Like, <laughs> were there shows? What was your first show? He's like super like, like he has his like kind of like, you know, his mode of interviewing someone that's just about like their DIY roots, like what was happening with, you know, like their early, how do they start playing music? Which makes sense, like with Min- the Minutemen's like kind of like primordial like DIY vibe, you know, where it's like you can start a band and like they can be whatever you want it to be, I guess. Yeah, he has this uh, like in- instinctively utilitarian take on everything. I mean, this we'll get into also all of this, but but their approach to everything is just like so immediate and visceral uh, that it is just like a pleasure pleasure to hear him talk about things because it's so devoid of ego or pretension. It's just like, how do you do what you do? Let's 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 you know talk bare facts. But we can start by going around as we usually do. Uh, you know, w- what brought you guys to the Minutemen? When were you first uh, aware of these guys, and, and how did you become a fan or just interested? Doug, well, do you want to go? Yeah, I think that my first exposure to the Minutemen was likely through you and Kate Puhala and Jenny Konat, I believe that was her name, at a rock show, WNUR meeting, called Whacked Out in the 80s, in which... Um, so the, the rock show was amazing in that, and then you may have talked about this in the show before, but we had a weekly meeting for new DJs where like a 
zine-style pamphlet was passed out with information about usually like a subgenre or a location or era, something like this. And this was one that was called Wagged Out in the 80s, which focused on stuff from SST, um, sample-based music from Negative Land and John Oswald, um, Weirdo Prog, uh, post-punk. And I, I feel like that was my first sort of exposure to them in general was just through the radio station. And Max probably a little bit younger. Yeah, for me, I, I mean, like, cool I... Kid. <laughs> like honestly throughout my entire life i've never been that like much of like a, a punk head you know like in its most you know whatever intrinsic form or like the lineage of punk as it stands but i was obsessed with the Minutemen, especially double nickels and a dime i had that cd since i was like probably 12 or something and that album on its own is just like so sprawling and like filled with crazy ideas and it felt to me not anywhere near punk. I mean, obviously, if we zoom out now and look at the entire, like, you know, landscape of it, it was, like, intense, fast, direct. But it just felt like crazy prog. It felt like something like Mr. Bungle, you know? Like, <laughs> which was, like, an early touchstone for me for, like, weird genre-bending progressive, like, rock music that is a million things at once. So hearing Minutemen, especially Double Nickels, where where they the contrast between every track is like you know hard track, slow like guitar like interlude like funk track, you know it's like that appealed to me so much. I like poured over that album and and I played bass when I was growing up. So like playing that album like the bass lines like the Mike Watt element. There's so many sick bass lines that album and like just like working on those was big for me for sure. It's hilarious to the extent that all three of them are just beasts at their instruments. Those Watt yes. bass lines are out of control. It's like a, a lead voice constantly and it like opens up so much room, but it's like very melodic and I, it's hard to even explain. It's like pretty funky. It's like James Brown is what I think of constantly when I'm listening to Minutemen, you know? Yeah. Uh, Molly? I didn't know about the band until I read the book when I borrowed it from you five years ago. Uh, and so I had a delightful discovery of the Minutemen after reading about them. And it was, I mean, I, and I kind of like, I sort of fell off the train and like was, you know, putting them on blast all this week and just being like, God damn it. Like it's, it's such an amazing, like contained works of art uh, altogether. And especially like the song length, like the album, the song length versus the album length. And you just like <laughs> the journey that you go on from start to finish is like completely nuts. Um, but yeah, I, I was like totally unfamiliar and uh, reading about it through the, you know, mostly the words of Mike Watt, who we'll, we'll get to, but a uh, very idiosyncratic way of expressing himself that I think re- is even more like endearing besides the, the music and the lyrics themselves. I probably was similar to Doug that, you know, I, coming into the the radio station and coming to the rock show was just like so instantly opening to so many different things that you know it's a, a little overwhelming and at that time you know i had one of the earlier generation ipods and then I, the way i would go about music is like uploading a few or ripping and burning a, a, a few cds at a time and then like putting them in my in rotation and uh when i got to the Minutemen and had double nickels on a dime it's there's so many songs on it i just remember the experience of that like quarter 
or, or season of the year that I had that going in rotation that when I had my like new songs on shuffle, it just was like every other song was a Minutemen just from sheer quantity. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the game, the system. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Pre, pre Spotify algo, uh, gaming. So it's just like, it got to the point where, because I was, you know, hi- hitting these songs so first from so fast from the, uh, like the first note, I would just be like, next. Oh, that's Cohesion. Next. Oh, uh, that's Toadies. Next. Oh, that's uh, a political song for Michael Jackson to sing. Well, but, if you think about it, the total amount of time you spent listening to Minutemen was probably comparable to another band on the MP3 player or whatever. But the fact that they would just cut in with the, the short bursts, it was like they were like constantly like reminding themselves like to you, you know? like Yeah. So I was like, into them for a while, but it really took a little later watching the We Jamicano documentary, even after I had like read this book. And so much of that documentary is just hanging out with Mike Watt and like literally driving around San Pedro in a van with him. Like most of his interviews are just like the cameras and the driver in the passenger seat. And he's just driving his van around that really like cracked to me how specific he is in the way that he talks and thinks about music and everything and that was the kind of the moment that it all like clicked to me that more than just kind of like kind of a goofy fun band with these short uh, cool punk songs that and even after reading reading this book how much of like a whole world view the Minutemen contain and can project through their songs it kind of like ascended me a level of appreciation about them because the, this this band is I mean our band could be your life is not a brag about this band. It is It is not just a group. It's like a whole worldview of how to approach music and being in the world that is insanely compelling to me. Well, I would say it's like an invitation more than anything, you know? Mm. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like if you want to do it, like, you can just do it. It's, it's great and fun, you know? It's like, our, it, it mm-hmm. could be your life. Like, it's not like something to aspire to that is like out of your reach, you know? It's yeah. like, it's just like, just, just go for it. You know? And when I was sitting here reading it again, just I, I didn't read the whole book again, but I read the intro and I read the Minutemen chapter. And it's really clear to me that like that band, even though like without us like deliberately uh, making the decision had an incredible impact on our lives because like of the entire like indie label sphere that they left behind their sort of sensibilities lead towards this nineties label infrastructure, thrill jockey, touch and go, whatever you will, that like we very much are like the weird cyborg internet children. (laughs) Um, And it's like their ideals still cast, they cast a shadow over like pretty much any like small entrepreneurial musical operation, like without the people even necessarily knowing it. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you guys at the at the very end of just a little bit about, you know, your experiences running the label and, you know, what you take away from this era and what is new and different. But let's get into the uh, the story of, of, of D. Boone, Mike Watt, and George Hurley. Great. Let's do it. Um, so this is, again, California story. They started in San Pedro, which it's San Pedro, right? It's- Pedro? Pedro? When I've heard well, them talking about it, they say Pedro. In lyrics, they say Pedro. So okay. we can say Pedro. <laughs> We're allowed. The it's the band is the result of a adolescent friendship between uh, Mike Watt and Dennis D. Boone, 
Uh, Mike Watts' dad was a career Navy man who transferred to San Pedro from Virginia. Um, uh, Mike was just like in a park looking for kids to play with. And uh, one literally jumped out of a tree and landed right in front of him and said, you're not Eskimo. And Mike responded, no, I'm not Eskimo. And uh, this this guy was D Boone <laughs> and they became fast friends. It was like literally something out of a like, you know, old old fashioned movie. Uh, D Boone's father. Yeah, was, I love the uh, yeah. I just have always loved that detail of like D Boone basically like falling out of a tree on top of Mike Watt. You can really see it. Yeah, it's it's very it does feel very like leave it to beaver in its own way. Yeah. Um D Boone's dad has the most like working class ass job I've maybe heard of, which is that he's a Navy vet who made a living by installing radios in Buicks. <laughs> like I don't I don't know how you get more like classically blue yeah, collar. Not just radios, not just Buicks, but radio radios. putting the radios into the Buicks. There must have been a lot of Buicks in that <laughs> yeah, <for> sure. <laughs> just like lined up out the door. All right. <laughs> Thirty a day. And they all needed radios. Um, we, weird, uh, twist also in the rock, uh, band story, which is that, uh, D Boone's mom is the one who encouraged them to start a band. I feel like that's not usually necessarily how it goes. Um, and so they just like started a band. Uh, they amazingly, they had, they got two guitars. They didn't realize that bass guitars were different from regular ones. So Mike Watt just put four strings on a regular guitar. They also didn't know anything about tuning. They thought that, um, you either like to have your strings loose or tight, <laughs> which I thought was amazing. Yeah. Which, uh, which of course reminds me of my f- favorite, a thing I've mentioned many times on the show, the, the Jad Fair essay about playing guitar, or the David Fair, Jad Fair's brother, where he's just like, yeah, you know, t- big strings, little strings, whatever you want to put on it. Tune them all to the same note or tune them all different notes. It's fine. Just p- put, put a strings on the guitar and play it. Well, you know, that's interesting because, like, even if you have, like, an out-of-tune guitar and you're writing your own language with it or song, like you have to make a decision about the tuning. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like you can't just let it, like you can't every time they're not going like, it's like if, if, if David fair wants to play a song that he wrote again, he has to be in that tuning. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, there's a line between like, I don't even care how my guitar is tuned versus like, I have a weird self developed system or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I assume that they were like putting the guitars in tune to themselves, but I'm sure it was a long time before they like bought a guitar tuner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. This is likely just their self-deprecating story to be like, we were (laughs) fucking, we were little corn dogs. Like we were little kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the learning to play bass on guitar first is interesting because I imagine that that somewhat affects like how melodic uh, his like bass style playing is. Mm, For sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, they were also, you know, besides music, they were interested in politics. I really like this quote from Mike Watt where he says, D. Boone would talk about the English Civil War or something. So I would read up on Cromwell just to know what he was fucking talking about. <laughs> these little these little nerds. We all have that friend who won't shut up about the English Civil War. But we yeah. don't all have that friend who will read the book and, and get on your level. Yes. That's special. The way that they describe like this like learning process about like history to me is like proto internet in a way, you know? It's mm. like it's like they were deepening their personal knowledge about whatever they could get their hands on and it was like history in books, you know, and like, you know, kind of like facts. It's like they can talk about that, you know. They didn't have like a million different you know, sources to find information. They were just like learning what they could, you know, likely hitting Mm -hmm. the library pretty hard. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) They, 
also, you know, as they're playing music, they basically said that at this time, late, you know, or mid 70s in San Pedro, if you played in a band, the best band was just the one who could play the Led Zeppelin song the best. Like there was no concept of writing your own music. Every band was a cover band. This is something that we hear a lot in these narratives of bands of just like literally not even realizing that you can write your own songs. Um, but they read, and this is a theme, this is like Black Flag as well, they read uh, Cream and Crawdaddy uh, magazines and that led them to discover the Ramones and the Clash. And then they listened to the Clash and said, oh, we can do that, <laughs> and <laughs> wrote their first song. And also their first song is incredible. Uh, it's called Storming Tarragona, which is named after the housing development where Dee Boone lived. And it's about tearing down the projects and building real houses for people to live in. That was their Sick. first song. Amazing. Beautiful. Right? Like, yep. <laughs> I, I, I was struck by that. It was clearly, clearly a thing. Um, their band, it was a punk band called The Reactionaries, which is, again, just like, just perfect. Um, but they ended up on a black flag bill pretty early which goes with the theme of just like sort of seeing uh, Greg Ginn for, for the rest of this book in different formats. Um, and then they got kind of immediately bored with the idea that like a punk band had to have this like brash uh, front man. So they kind of re reset and then they uh, named their band the Minutemen, which is after the Revolutionary War militia, um, not after the song lengths, <laughs> even though you could make that uh, claim. But they... They, they got together, they did the thing. They started uh, developing their own like language and uh, kind of like internal lingo. So like lyrics were spiels. Um, <laughs> things that were commercial were called mersh. Uh, things that were bourgeois were called bouge. And if you were thrifty and efficient, that was called being a cano. This is my favorite thing about them is this like interior language that they develop and you can hear it in a, like every line of what they say, even when it's just transcripts of them talking casually. And it has that kind of sensation of like tw how twins get their own language or something. Mm. It, it feels like, like Nell, that. But it is, like the movie Nell. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and I think that they like speak to this idea is that they really felt, it's also very funny how the way that they talk about San Pedro, Pedro as if it's like, they grew up in the middle of the desert, like secluded from civilizations. Cause San Pedro is like geographically connected to Los Angeles. It's not nowhere, yeah. but they talk about it in the sense that, th that they were such nobodies from such nowhere. And this sense of isolation can really be felt in the way that they like talk about themselves and develop this own language and have all these idiosyncratic phrases about approaching their music. And then you can hear it in their in their music because they ultimately were always doing it just for each other you know yeah totally i think that like one aspect of that last chunk of like history that stands out to me is the fact that bands like the clash and the ramones represented this kind of like and sex pistols like like the first wave of punk but they were also like paid and like famous mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. financed and like part of like the bigger ecosystem of like rock and like we're playing big shows. And like, so even though they're supposed to be like punk quote unquote, like they represent an entirely different, like stratum, you know what I mean? Scale. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like in a lot of ways, the sort of scale that these SST bands exist on is like invented in that moment. Yeah. Like there mm -hmm. wasn't, there wasn't a space for bands like that really maybe in some local communities, but for the most part, like non cover 
original bands playing tours where they would just play to like between 10 and a hundred people. That was not really heard of because that's just like, was was seen as just a foolish thing. And like uh, the, the sort of like die for your art mentality wasn't like fully baked into like the rock music scene. Rock music was about opulence and having the double necked guitar and the pyrotechnics. <laughs> it wasn't about like going to the VFW to play for 16 year olds. <laughs> Max, it is a good point about, and wh- one of the things that I think is always so fascinating about like punk and that original generation of it is that by time it became well known, like the thing that it represented was already kind of obliterated by its absorption into the the music world. So it is funny, like seeing the Greg Greg Ginn and you know D Boone reading about these guys in Crawdaddy or whatever, and the image that they're portraying of being like these street toughs who can barely play guitar are nonetheless creating some of the most powerful rock music, and be like, ah, oh, damn, I could do that. And by that time, like the Ramones had already put out albums on like Columbia or whatever. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and they were just obviously trying to perpetuate the image that they had set at the beginning, and that the the culture had you know, absorbed about them. They couldn't like abandon that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. even if they were rich, basically, you know, well, it's so hard to imagine being a music fan at that time, because I imagine there's this situation where you get the magazine from the record store, but then you go back to the record store the next week and they don't have the record. Right. And then like, what, what are you supposed to do if you just are a teenager living in a kind of exurb from my understanding, like a really far out suburb zone. Like if, that record store doesn't ever get the clash LP. Like you're, you're fucked. I don't know. (laughs) It's like the, the level of access is, is so different, which I think leads into what we were talking about earlier where they felt so isolated that like, if you you weren't in a city and you didn't have a car and you were just like a kid, you were, you were stuck and you had only the resources that like this one town could offer. Yeah. Which, you know, maybe goes to explain something like, uh, the black flag guys from last episode being so pissed off at Genesis all the time. Cause imagine like reading all the, all these great stories about, you know, television and, and the clash. And every time you go into the record store, all it is, is, for, is, you know, an entire row of Genesis albums. <laughs> I, honestly, a, a, a cultural era when Prague was like, was like a penny, like whatever. Yeah. It's like a dream to me. It's like utopian. Like if, if <laughs> yeah. Genesis and yes. And King Crimson was all you could find in a record store. I'd be like, I'm still stoked about this. Yeah. Like, <laughs> agree. And like yeah. <laughs> the minute matter, like the most prog of all the bands in this book, I think. Yes. Well, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and is, wait, does Sonic Youth have a chapter? Yeah. Yeah. Sonic then, no, Youth, then Sonic uh, Youth is more prog than Minutemen, but other, yeah, other, than, yeah, other, than, yeah. other than Sonic Youth, like Minutemen is the most prog band. Yeah. Them. But they they're, would they're never prog s- in their, in their own way. They would never say that or claim that. Like they would, they like disdain like fusion and Prague. I feel like to some degree, or they said yeah, they we, did at some point. You know what I mean? But I guess we just use the word Prague differently. That like the Minutemen are this like sort of like they sound like a post rock band. They sound like a touch and go band. And I think a post rock is a form of Prague music. Like Tortoise is a Prague band to me mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And it's all this sort of like let's take all of this shit and like put it in a bottle and shake it up and have like all this, this like technicality, all these sections and like yeah. the Minutemen are that a hundred percent. And like narrative progression, like literally the word like Prague, it's like, it's like progressing through a narrative and they do that like so well, just like, yeah. I know. I, to- I totally buy that. I think that there is that, that spirit within them, even if, and you know, it kind of busts down the, the delineations of what is punk and Prague. I mean, they're both, kind of like attitudes and you can just hold both attitudes at the same time. Yeah. Mm. 
Well, to speak to Chris, your assessment that they, you know, their isolation gives creates their own little like world building situation. I really liked. Uh, uh, I think this was Mike Watt saying this. Oh yeah. So just in terms of like the economic situation, they both went to college. I think they both dropped out. Maybe Mike Watt finished, but. I just thought this was amazing. Like Boone studied art, uh, but he dropped out because he didn't want to use his art for commercial purposes. <laughs> and uh, Mike Watts studied electronics, but he didn't want to work in the defense industry. So they were just like, this was also like an economic, you know, not that it was going to be uh, like incredibly lucrative, but like it just wasn't literal, a literal alternative lifestyle. And Mike said of that, he said, sometimes you have to act out your dreams because circumstances can get you crammed down. And instead of getting angry and jealous of what they got, why not get artistic about it and create a little work site, a little fiefdom, as long as it don't oppress anybody or something. I think it's kind of healthy. I just love that. There are immediate like instincts to not participate in things that they deem unethical is like insanely admirable. Uh, even if they do it from this very like workman, even and especially because they do it from this very like workman like perspective. I mean, it's also I feel like there's there's a way to do that and like maybe be a little bit of a dick about it. And they seem like very empathetic to the idea that you might have to work a job that sucks or a job for, you know, that you're working for evil people. They just happen to like I, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later. The, the idea of being like an average Joe versus a special Joe. Because <laughs> I really enjoyed. Like they, I think they were like slightly special Joes in that they, they did. They just thought of like a, a slightly different world to occupy. Um, they recorded an EP, Paranoid Time, on SST. Uh, the you know Greg Greggins record label and they also held down menial jobs there which I think is just amazing that Greg managed to create a a a job that like you could pay someone like D Boone or Mike Watt like that's amazing that they had this like functional business I kind of can't believe it yeah I mean it's not yeah. like it's not like they're like monsters like you know what I mean like, like they, they can have jobs like for sure but <laughs> but I, I know what you're saying in that. It, it's a job that could revolve around their like lifestyle, which involves playing, promoting, being involved in creating their like community. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like Greg, Greg Ginn, like giving them a job, like, you know, packaging or doing whatever, like promotion or whatever. Well, in the book, it said they would go to the record stores to like. Oh yeah. Watt was like the guy that would like, yeah. Like connect with the record stores. That's right. For sure. And like, and, Probably it was if I remember correctly, he was like, I don't. They didn't tell him the name, and they were like, edit this out if I. No, no, no. It's right. He went by the name Spaceman. Yeah, right? Spaceman. There Space we go. Spaceman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is Spaceman. Have you con considered the new meat puppets? <laughs> meat puppets. Yeah. yeah. Spaceman for meat puppets. <laughs> um, are, is is Paranoid Time available to listen to? Should yeah, we, let's yeah. listen to a very pro. Let's listen to a, uh, I'm gonna share. I think it's like I sound. think it's like six minutes long. The whole EP. <laughs> it's sick. I listened to it a couple days ago. Yeah, it rules. Uh, well, we'll listen to maybe one or two of these, uh, but. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and start when it starts getting overtly political, um, maybe on side two. I don't know which one based on the length, but here's sickles and hammers.
so that's the entirety of Sickles and Hammers. Usually <laughs> I come in to like talk over the songs, but I figure because it's 48 seconds long, I would just let it play out a little bit. But it's just like, those are so, I'm, I'm letting the, the album play forward a little bit here. But it's just like such an incredibly, it's like everything you need in a rock song, like right there in 48 seconds, you know? Well, it's I mean, so much more than you usually get in a rock song. Like yeah. there are so many more riffs than a punk song. There's so many more riffs and like, interlocking elements and just like I don't know skull fucks for, for lack of a better word <laughs> than, than a Ramon song which is just like that like someone who has had six months of guitar lessons could play like you would need to I don't know it's just so much more technical and elevated than like what you would expect well I would also say that the sheer number of sections they can compress an entire song into like a verse chorus bridge verse chorus bridge two that's like you know it's like four different riffs that all appear in less than a minute and mm-hmm. it's not waiting for it all to scroll through every time it's going piece by piece instantly you know like which is prog sorry to say yeah you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait, and it's also just like you know that they were like playing at that level on their first ep where it's just like also locked in also clicking together uh, the interplay is always is already there. Their songwriting sounds like it would for the you know for the rest of of their career. I mean, obviously they do a bunch of different things and try different things, but yeah, it's like no, you're right. It's always very uh, compelling to me when a band is like right out the gate, fully formed like that. Well, and they're, those, they're very those are my favorite bands. Like favorite bands are the ones that like the first album cements their entire sound. You know. Yeah. And yeah. These, these people were very young when they made this music. I, Mike Watt was 22 when this album came out. Yeah. Which was old for the punk, kind of old for the the punk <laughs> well, scene. But yeah, it's like get, getting to that point and like being so, especially if your your thing is so very you. Yep, I just think that like in the last several, I mean, the last like twenty years, very rarely do we hear that sort of like fully formedness from that young of a band. Like yeah. that that would be like college children, right? I don't know. Like I feel good about the music that I made in college, but I don't feel like the music that I made in college was like a succinct, like representation of like my entire self that I would be for the rest of my life. Right. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Well, so they formed in 1980 and this came out in 81. So I, in my head, I thought that they had like played more like, you know, before they recorded something, but this was like pretty raw from the very beginning, I guess. Right. Well, other than like Boone and Watt having played oh, like, yeah, played right. together for right, like right. years at that point, the reactionaries or whatever, right? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, and just like jamming together and shit like that. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, yeah. they had a lot of time to develop what this thing was, but uh, but no, I mean, for the per- first thing that you like put on record, it's still very impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so they they play a bunch of shows. They build a modest local following. They get like some attention from college radio. Like things are kind of a little bit kicking in for them. Um, it, they didn't look like a glamorous band, uh, I think. And that was, I think, key to their appeal in a certain way of just like they didn't look. I think they uh, one of them referenced uh, seeing T-Rex as like a formative live experience and being like, these people look like like fae, you know, aliens uh, from like a very like glamorous planet. Like that's like not what we are at all. We look like we I mean, l- later we'll say that they had to start um 
uh, setting up their equipment on stage and then staying there because if they left the stage after they set up their equipment, security would uh, often pull them thinking that they were just <laughs> a member of the audience and not in the band. Um, and then Spot, who is the SST, is it is his correct jo- job? He's just like the in-house like producer slash engineer for all of this stuff in the early 80s? Yes, I believe that's true. But also, I um, also imagine that he did kind of a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. Spot of all. That's spot how of in- all trades. Independent labels tend to be that like you might have a job, but you are end up cleaning the basement too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, spot said that D Boone would just get up on stage and he would just shake. You wondered if he had some <laughs> kind of congenital nerve disease. <laughs> um, and then they, yes. I should have looked this up. Is there any uh, footage? footage of them playing live? There's a 1985 show. Um, so that's at, at the very end, basically. That's right? at near the yeah, end. Yeah. 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 Maybe I'll, maybe I'll patch some of that in uh, towards the end of this. But yeah, he it's he's very funny. He does they he does not look like a rock, rock guy, but in a great way. There's a charisma about them, especially when he gets his little mohawk going. <laughs> I gotta um, watch that live footage. I've never seen that, but like I'd imagine that. 1985 is when their live material was the best. That's like where their whole sort of last album, posthumous album is cold from like that, mm-hmm. that period. Like I, I know they, they wanted to make this huge live album and they ended up doing it through, through just like what Oz and Saz were around, but their catalog must've been enormous in that period of time. Like, yeah. like in, in the book too, they talk about how they had their poll for what songs would be in uh, featured on this hypothetical live album. And uh, I looked at the results on the internet and it was like, it was like a 50 song thing. Like, and that's, <laughs> that's crazy for a band that had, I mean, I, I don't know, like the like bands like the Grateful Dead or Fish who we were talking about earlier, like uh, you expect them to be like playing like these enormous set lists, but a punk band, you expect them to have like, uh, I, I don't know, maybe I'm off base here, but it's, it's just, yeah. I, I'd imagine that like an hour and a half Minutemen show in 1985 featured material from like every album, every era. And just like, was it a, a totally spell? Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Covers like constant switches, like filling like the entire, yeah, it must be insane. There are a few videos, few videos online of them that well, at the very end of this, we can watch, I'll patch in some video of this and we can watch a little together and just get a sense of this, of them playing live. They also, uh, in 1983, they went on tour with Black Flag opening for them in uh, Europe. And they had a horrible, I mean, well, I say they have a horrible time. It would be a horrible time for me. Um, They were, you know, pelted with uh, used condoms, bags of shit, cups of piss, even a toilet seat. Um, And of course, Mike Watt says of that, it was a small price to pay for getting out there and playing. (laughs) Personally, I think getting hit with shit is worse than the toilet seat. I don't know why even a toilet seat is at the end of that list, as if that's the worst, because raw shit or piss is probably worse than the toilet seat. A toilet yeah. seat could break your rib, though. Like, <laughs> yeah, it like, could knock you out. Like, shit, well, it you depends can, like, wash on... off. And, like, Mike Watt also admits later that he, like, did a whole tour with, like... No, it wasn't Watt. Like, it, was, it was Boone. You're talking about okay. Boone. Okay. Yeah. I guess uh, true. I but think like, they both, like, they both had shit stories. Yeah, they both though, were poopy they, guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's pretty insane, man. Well, yeah. They talk about they talk about D Boone having to pull over 20 minutes after every meal 
just on the side of the road just to have explosive doo-doo time. <laughs> and, and like, no, and like yeah. Yeah, Mike Watt had like his poop-filled pants to No, no, that was yeah, Boone yeah. also. Oh, that was Boone too? No, no, no. Watt had the diarrhea. Oh, okay. But like, okay, they, like, right. for, for poopy dudes, like, <laughs> poop, poop, like, take a shower. Like, toilet right. seat, like, oh no, like, I lost five teeth. Like, like I the lights out. Well, it depends on how hard it's thrown, obviously. I guess, but it's if it's true. like thrown like a frisbee, like from like from a balcony above or something, like you're fucked. And you gotta, it's a European toilet seat. Is that like made? You know, it's, yeah, it's marble. Like porcelain. It's marble. Yeah, marble. <laughs> yeah, marble Euro seat. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. I, I just imagine them not playing in like dives and VFW halls in Europe, but instead like you know, uh, uh, like art museums and stuff. People are still like <laughs> ripping beautiful old churches. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If it's anything like how U.S. bands are treated in Europe now versus U.S., then a hundred percent they were playing in like crystal palaces. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So they also they uh, Azurad says they they began to hit their stride with their album "What Makes a Man Start Fires," which I just think is a great it's a great album title. Um, should we album. listen to something from that? Right, one right. song that I like is well, the, the first track is definitely pretty iconic. Yeah, Bob Dylan wrote. That's the one that I know. And the anchor is a really good one too. All right, well let's let's do uh, Bob Dylan wrote propaganda songs. This is the first track. All right, here we go. This bass intro is wild. That bass playing is just so out of control. I mean, it honestly sounds almost exactly like Steve Harris from Iron Maiden. Like, like this sounds like uh, Aces High by Iron Maiden. Like, yeah. Like, I think that like the the new wave of British heavy metal like was definitely like present in in the Minutemen like big time. It's just like yeah. It's that kind of like you know driving like proto thrash. <laughs> Which is why he's a pick. Yeah, that's, really? that, that's why I, I definitely sounded that way in this song when I was like, when I was like breaking it down, like the bass intro. I'm like, what is he doing? Is he like? Dum, 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 no, he's, he's using he's using a like pick picking. for sure. Yeah. yeah, he's using a pick. Yeah. It's funny to think about it in like that idea in that idea of British metal or uh, thrash because I mean, obviously there's an aggression to this, but it doesn't feel that same like uh, anger or or like malevolentness that like that British metal or, or thrash has because it has. It's almost like this just exuberant like welling and and, and sharing of the energy. That's kind of why I picked Iron Maiden because they they have a lot of these kind of like triumphant like uh, anthemic like battle cry type songs. They had that galloping, but you know, like like that kind of vibe, you know. But then yeah. when it gets into this song, it transitions at least before they started singing into like pure 90s post-rocky stuff like could have been slint for the first 30 seconds of the song just like mm-hmm. languid guitar riffs like 
I, I don't know. It, it's it's such a good transition from track one to two here. Yeah. Uh, this is the this is the anchor. This is a little. Oh, the anchor. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I thought. I'm like I'm like I recognize this song. This is like. All right, I'll, I'll play the beginning of this. I see, I see what you're saying about this, like, uh, you know, this droney, uh, low bass notes before it gets into the, like, funk part of this. Totally. It's, like, yeah. bass as lead, the, like, drum roll, which becomes, like, such, like, uh, like, the forever drum roll is such, like, an explosion in the sky or, like, Godspeed <laughs> trick. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it's, like... It, it's like if that section had been for five minutes instead of 30 seconds, it would have been like a touch-and-go album, 100%. <laughs> so this is, uh, that's the anchor. Before that was Bob Dylan wrote propaganda songs off of What Makes a Man Start Fires. It's just so human. Like, it's so legible. I just love it. Yeah, like, it, you don't listen to it and you're like, oh, oh. Like, it, it, it's like easy access, but like... I don't know. Then, like, low-key complicated. It's just so good. Well, what you're saying is, like, it's not, like, aggro enough to, like, to, like, kind of scare you away. Because I feel that mm-hmm. way. If I'm not in the right mood for something that's, like, intense, like, screaming metal or or even punk, you know, I'm like. But but this this has that user-friendliness for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You can kind of tell what every guy in the band is doing at every moment. I mean, I guess this takes, like, some kind of knowledge of, like, how to play guitars or bass or drums. But you can, like, kind of hear exactly what they're doing in each part even if it is like fat, super fast and complicated and like suss out each of the parts as they come together yeah mm-hmm. well, yeah and that becomes a lot more difficult in two guitar bands or bands that have a guitar player and keyboard where there's like a lot more um like spectral comp spectral competition or something yeah. um <laughs> there's, like where, where... there's something very intimate about it you know mm-hmm. well it's like counterpoint you know it's yeah. like bass voices and guitars that are interacting and converging or guitar and bass, not guitars, you know, like Doug was and saying. Yeah. And I think that part of the intimacy is that, like, it's, for the most part, recorded live. There are very little overdubs on these albums. They're mostly recorded in sequence. Um, and that, like, it is just like a band that has practiced a lot. You throw up a mic and they're playing. It's not yeah. not like a lot of the, their contemporaries where, like, it is a much more thought-out studio affair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about jamming Econo because as they're getting, you know, becoming more of a thing and they're touring and they're recording, uh, their their mission in life is to, you know, embody thriftiness uh, and sort of flexibility and, uh, uh, you know, a horrible startup person might might call it being like lean. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm like, I wish I hadn't even said that but they they're they're very much like they they record during the studio graveyard shift they don't you know they're not doing a lot of takes um they're very like economical in the way they record um they record on used tape like they are they they cut corners without being you know stingy they're just very much like uh you know even in the way they tour and and everything like that and they turn a profit when they tour like they jamming economy for them is ultimately like a successful way to like live for them, which I think is amazing. Yeah, one of my favorite things about 
this life this lifestyle or, or philosophy that they embody is how they think of the output of the band as everything is either flyers or gigs uh and the way they they made money was through the gigs is getting people to show up at the show so literally everything else that they did for the band they considered it flyers like getting people to show up for the gigs which meant not just like putting out records or like doing interviews but at one point they actually make a music video for like $400 and gets play on MTV and i think they say it loses to a kaja it, it's a nominated for award and loses to a kaja gugu video as you do uh, yeah, yeah that's but true. but them even them talking about shooting a video is like that that's just a flyer that's just to get people to the show and the video costs like $400 yeah so that, yeah that's a kano for sure yeah. that's yeah. jamming a kano <laughs> but hey we're, we're kind of all the way back around because now all you really need to shoot a music video is like an iphone and some some cool ideas yeah, yeah like sure. every computer has the the software like it's it's um jamming a kano is like again so intrinsically imbued into people's daily lives without even thinking about it because of how technology has changed yeah mm. like because sure. like you, if you just can get a laptop you can get free software you can start recording on your mic you can start getting sound there's like no the the level of access is lower than ever um and like it's i was supposed to put this it's just like people just intuitively know how to jam econo without even necessarily knowing about the Minutemen. it's just like their philosophy is is such an important um header over like just uh music culture in general well i would say it's like become like an intuitive path to follow you know like mm. like based on like their example and then generations of examples after them like doug was saying now that you can just do it all yourself it's like of course you would want to do that and that's i mean i don't know no that's not true because people don't want to do that people want to spend money sometimes and feel like they're at like a big you know crazy recording studio whatever if you're part of the industry you're in a different like level of recording and investment mm-hmm. all this stuff but your intrinsic level is just like you can just do it on your laptop and it, it's free yeah it's that i mean because of them uh there is this tradition to follow and that that the idea that there is a way to do it econo had to start somewhere and like develop more traditions throughout it and that yeah obviously you can like I don't know, be a young songwriter who like gets noticed and gets signed to a major label. And that's like one way to become a star. Or you can like get a hand-me-down laptop and pirate some software and get like one of these fucking SM58s that I'm holding for like 60 bucks and just do it all in your bedroom. And I mean, not everybody is, is following that, but you know, it is, it is because of, of, of the Minutemen and like that ethos that there is a whole like ecosystem of people to support people who do stuff like that. Uh, including you guys. She is. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say too, the, the alternative, it's a, an amazing solve for the alternative, which is just getting completely scammed by your major label because you are certainly not jamming Econo there. Um, I, if I had a nickel for every time someone basically got paid in cash by their manager and then at the end of their record contract heard from their label that they owed like a million dollars, I'd have a, a few nickels. And like the, the easiest way, not the easiest, but the clearest way to not do that is to do it yourself. And they, they did it. Well, and, so shout out to them. And I think that we like we gloss this over. We have to kind of hit on the like 
level that they did it themselves to. Like they were their own car mechanics. They refused to ever have roadies, which which I don't know if we mentioned yet. They like yep. They anything they could do themselves, they did, and SST as well. Like we're just calling up record plants to make new relationships, making. Well, and, and I, I don't know what you talked about in the first episode either, but like this whole sort of fanzine network where, where everyone in that network had their own sort of project that they had started themselves. And it was this whole like system in which everyone was their own like social hub entrepreneur scene person. Very mm-hmm. unique zone. Yeah, and it's funny, like even hearing the word entrepreneur now, and, and kind of your skin crawling because the only way that that term is is deployed now is in either like weird, uh, like small business hustlers or like in, in Silicon Valley terms mm-hmm. or anything. But like yeah. that entrepreneurial mindset of like having to do something just with the only goal of is to seeing something exist, not to like get rich, get successful, make a name or do anything like that, but just be like, well, damn. There, there's this band and I like their music and I want a record to exist. How can I like make a record company happen to produce this record yeah. in, and make sure it exists? Or like I'm 17 and I'm starting a magazine. Like yeah. that, that's like unheard of. Um, mm-hmm. e- even if there's unless no- you're a uh, Tavi Gevinson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, <laughs> well, I mean, it, but even, it, and then even she like is a funny example now because she's a, like a 17 year old or 15 year old, whatever she was when she started that magazine. And now she's she like, like 12. Uh, and now in our generation of doing, of starting your, your hyped zine at age 12, she is now like a nationally known media figure figure who is like digitally selling condo spaces in New York. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think was when Doug was saying it's unheard of, I think that he was more referring to back then. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Because now anyone can start a magazine if they're 17 or eight. You know what I mean? By magazine, yeah. I mean like, you know, a blog yeah. or a social media account. But yeah, like to have the dream and like the motivation to start your own magazine when you're 17 in 1980 one or whatever is crazy for sure yeah especially if you live in like san pedro or like tulsa or something mm-hmm. it's just like i'm starting a magazine because i love music like your parents are like what like yeah. what <laughs> like what are you doing like it's it's like it's it, it would be just like very surprising to other people yeah all these things that feel very secondhand now i, I think we can't discount the amount to which all these guys were like the firsts mm-hmm. yeah right i mean there were of course a million different communities that were doing this sort of thing but I don't know if any of them reached the level of influence as like SST. Well, uh, well, from our America centric point of view, that's the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? There could hey, be any know. number of other crazy scenes that we know nothing about. Yeah, and especially like yeah. I think all of this is in the context of like downstream looking at the like rock and specifically like indie underground rock and mu- experimental music scene. Right. That that kind of generated past this. Because there was definitely ecosystems of a similar or bigger scale in all kinds of other look like other genres, you know, like yeah, soul music or like you know proto mm-hmm. like like I don't know proto hip hop and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, but but in terms of of yeah, just rock the history of rock music. Like, yeah. this is like the genesis of of all of this stuff. Definitely we're, genesis. We're gonna stay in the guitar center here, Max. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, don't leave from. The wall of the flying V's, like this is where yeah, they yeah. are. Yeah, I was like, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's, that, that's the context for all of this. The guitar yeah. center of the mind. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's where I live sometimes, but only like one, 
one-tenth of the time. You know, what I mean? uh, <laughs> you know, it's a nice place to visit. It's like a timeshare, yeah. you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, you know, so the, they're getting some attention, but in this kind of somewhat regimented idea of like what genre is at the time you know there's obviously the hardcore scene is happening they are not strictly hardcore and I, I like the way they described the difference between them and maybe other bands is like other bands were social punk and they were music punk like the, their punkness came from pushing the envelope in terms of genre and what they were doing and how they were presenting it um, and Mike Watts said, we hope to shake up the young guys because punk rock doesn't have to mean one style of music. It can mean freedom and going crazy and being personal with your art. And I think that speaks to maybe that prog thing that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. 100%. How, how prog can be punk. It, it can be an exploration, not just a constriction. When I think of like other like bands that would fall into the idea of like music punk, so to speak, I don't know who among the Minutemen's direct contemporaries I would include in that category, but I would include a ton of music from the seventies, you know, mm. like me and Doug's bread and butter is like the residents and like Ralph records. And like, yeah. and that stuff is like very punk. And I guess that was happening in the seventies and eighties. So this is kind of contemporaneous, like, you know, yeah. yeah. Like uh, I think, I think of like tuxedo moon or something, you know, like, like that was before the Minutemen and Beefheart, right? especially and Beefheart, yeah. of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I, I underlined a quote, just like rewinding one thought about the, the thing you're talking about with the, the social versus punk punk. And yeah. um, this is my favorite quote in this chapter by Mike Watt. It's just, um, we throw all this soft music, folk music, jazz, etc. not only to avoid getting caught in just one style, but also to show them that, see, you didn't want any rules. This is what you wanted. You didn't want to be told what to listen to. And like, I, I think that that's like so much more punk than like the punk predecessors than like, the Clash or the Ramones or the Sex Pistols, none of which have really ever resonated with me. Sorry if anyone's mm-hmm. a fan. Um, but like it, it <laughs> yes, th- that's yes. so much more punk to me. Like that makes the Minutemen or Beefheart or the Residents so much more punk than me because it's just like you wanted to go against the system. Like this is against the system. This is truly us and original and like and most of the time that's not what people wanted, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like it's proven that like that's most of the time that, that not not what people wanted. The social punks probably won out. That's why Blink One Eighty Two, and like, um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's um, most that's of the time what, that, people like don't want party. the real shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. pool party. Pool yeah, party Blink One Eighty Two is like pool party punk. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that's yeah. a good one. It's not punk to be like, oh, I don't want to listen to that kind of music, and then just listen to all the same of another kind of music. Exactly. Yeah, that's just another genre for sure. It's like, what does no rules really mean? If you are literally just following the rules presented by the the progressions and styles of another band, you know, of course, no rules means your expression vocally, perhaps like the, the politic aspect that might be where that energy and that spark and like the no rules factor and like the, you know, the, re- the rebellion and the revolutionary factor comes from. But that's different than like playing the guitar, you know? Yep. Yeah. No, they're they're punk as hell. The other thing that I do think is also punk as hell is that thematically uh, their music was by, for, and about the working person. And they they lived that ethos as well. Um, my favorite detail in this is that they scheduled shows early so that people who had to go to work the next day could like go to bed on time. That like melted my heart into goo. <laughs> I mean, they say they're not social punk, but they are like... 
from the beginning. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. they have the yeah, music, they're, they're, they have the music aspect, but it's all social, like for sure. Well, I think you'll see that the more you get into like this book, and the more the DIY the bands get, like social is just as important. It's just as much of a flyer. Like being social is a flyer in itself. Mm-hmm. Like you can't yeah. be in a scene without like connecting with other people on a whole national level once you're like touring those VFWs. And who knows? Like I think that they first and foremost were like we're about the music instead of like we're here to party and get junked out. I think that that's more of like what they're seeing as like the social punk. Yeah. It's like amazing. everyone has to be social and it's like an entire a social punk that's there to party or someone that's like part of this community. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're just like intuitive, uh, com- like commitment and understanding of the, the like working people's thing is very, very sweet. And you could tell that it stems from like the things that would have appealed to them as working people or people that came out of, you know, the household of a, a car radio installer. And that is like, yeah, to Doug, what you were saying, like, that is the intuitive social understanding of this whole thing is like the music is there for people to consume it. And so we have to design the whole thing for it to be consumed by people and who who would want to be the people there listening to our songs and what would they get out of it? It kind of reminds me, you know, that this gets into the pop realm, but we've had the conversation on the podcast before that like there's just very little popular music right now being made about like working people like at all that 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 is just like a, a whole sector of shit that is just like not even remotely relevant to music that is being listened to and so it is kind of a trip to obviously the you know they weren't chart topping uh musicians but like just hearing like so many songs about like they're i don't think they're quite like didactic or or anything but they're like just very accessible songs about political stuff like the the door is sort of wide open um and i appreciated that it's funny, even like a contemporary of them would be like <laughs> Lover Boys working for the weekend, <laughs> which even as like a glossy 80s pop song is still nonetheless about like, hey, it's Friday and you've been at work for five days and now you get to go take a weekend. Isn't that cool? And just like, but that, even wants, that-, to, that wants to wash your memories away and <laughs> invite you to the weekend as like a utopia. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, it's whereas the uh, Minutemen are, the Minutemen are like, it's all fucked. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would just say, like, even considering, but yeah, it's about it's about the work week. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just speaking, like, the the total like washing away of anything to do with like work. Yeah, in in the pop music landscape now. Right. Exactly. One of my favorite little bits is when they talk about how the Minutemen signed the Descendants to their record label. That they were particularly excited because one of the members was a plumber. <laughs> I thought that was like really, really on point for D Boone. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> we got him. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like he's he's a real dude. He's a union guy. Yeah, this guy they also knows. they also talk about how that they're like they have shame that they're not in a union that their dads weren't in the union, even though their dads were in the military, which is kind of like a union in itself or something. But yeah, I, I digress. Yeah. But like the I think that like the idea of like working with like a real plumber was like, oh yeah, like we can like go to the plumber's hall now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, it, we have a guy on the inside. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny cons- considering that they are like, you know, as we've been outlining here through all of these stuff, they are like the realest dudes, the realest ass dudes in the world. But at every single point, they're always kind of like self-deprecatingly talking about how 
you know, they could be realer or like, oh, we're not in unions. Self-conscious too. Like it's not just bravado. I wanted to read, I I am obsessed with this exchange between uh, Boone and Watt in a a fanzine, which like just, oh, perfect. Uh, Boone says proudly, I'm just the average Joe, the guy who has been a janitor, a restaurant manager, Watt, impatient. But the average Joe doesn't write songs. He doesn't write songs. Boone, well, this one did. Watt, you're not an average Joe. Boone, this one did. Watt, you're a special Joe. Boone, I was born out of being average because of my rock band. Watt, no, no, because of these tunes. D. Boone, you're special and you've got to cop to it. You've got to cop to it. You're special. Boone, exasperated. All right, ever since I was five years old, people said I could draw. Let him draw. Watt, triumphant. That's right. That's why I'm in a band with him. He's special. <laughs> it's very, very cute. It's, it's super so adorable. Sweet. But I mean, it, It's kind of like a chicken and the egg thing, right? It's like, are you special because you wrote the songs? Are you special as a result of writing the songs or are you special enough to have written the songs? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like a, it's like a tautology, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think I would, I would say that, and I think that if you really put them in a corner and made them bash their he- bash themselves over the head until they admitted it, that they would eventually get around to saying like, no, the thing that's really special is just like committing to do the songs that you have, you know, you don't have to be like special to write good songs I totally uh, agree. And writing you. writing good songs that make it special. What makes you special is actually like deciding to do the thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. We should explore Double Nickels on the Dime. Hell yeah. Uh, which was kind of in a, a sort of a competitive response to uh, Who's Gurdue's Zen Arcade. They recorded 45 songs. They mixed them all in one night and it cost them $1,100 to record. That's like that is crazy. so insane. The album is like... Eight, 75 minutes long or something, right? It's hella long. Yeah, it's super long. It just, as you're scrolling through it, it just goes on and on. I mean, there's so many good ones we could play off here. Um, I'll do my favorite, like, I don't even know if you would call these deep cuts. And then I want to play the one that's probably the most famous off of it uh, because I think it has some resonance. But here is Jesus and Tequila. She loved me so good She made a daddy man But my woman cried She's dead to me now My woman ran off And I can't deny it because of of the few Minutemen songs that we've listened to so far this is the one that sounds even remotely like it could be like another like another band could play it you know even if it is like still very very Minutemen-y well that that main riff is totally Beefheart the atonal blues like the kind of distorted like yeah yeah, but it's at a pace that is like band like 
band friendly, you know? Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, it has this, like, really pervy walking bass line. It's just, like, pervy, it's yeah. really pervy. This whole sound, like, it's like you're just, like, strutting down the street and your pants are falling down sort of vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which probably happened to D-Boon a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, these are, you know what? Th- thinking about these songs as like sketches, almost, I think, is actually helpful. Yeah, oh yeah, oh, that's yeah. A- or, or even like bits in in certain circumstances. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they they were in the chapter. They talk about how they were able to just write like songs that were so short that they didn't have to necessarily like like practice or reveal their structures to people you know it was like mm-hmm. they play that riff once maybe it goes by no one knew if they played it wrong or right it was just like <laughs> it was just like where you don't have to repeat it so yeah, it's exactly. like yeah there it is it's like a linear narrative this one has that riff that does come back a lot this this is not an example of which that is great it's yeah. such a great riff this one is like a real like like b- bar rock banger you know like uh, yeah yeah mm-hmm. Uh, so that's Jesus and Tequila. Now I have to play this other one because we all kind of skipped over uh, what was actually probably all of our first introduction to the Minutemen. Oh, yep. of course. But like, which is Corona? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't realize it until you're like no, you listening don't. to the album. Like you like get the album and you're like, oh shit, I know this song. Yeah. I've seen exactly. people like just destroy their testicles to this song. <laughs> <laughs> um. Which is, it's very weirdly appropriate that the Minutemen ended up having the Jackass theme. Because Molly and I have talked very much at length, uh, just between us, about Jackass and the importance of Jackass. and the eternal oh, masterpiece, masterpiece, yeah. yeah it's one of yeah. The, the true artistic accomplishments of the 21st century. I'll let, let a little of this play if nobody's ever heard the like verse part of this song. <laughs> right. <laughs> I do think that in addition to it just being like musically such an appropriate tone setter for that show, spiritually, I do also have to say that there is just something about the real sense of brotherhood and camaraderie that you get from the Jackass guys and that their whole thing and the their even success about it that is very Akano. Yes. Like they are. Oh my God, yeah. They are just guys with like the cheapest ass camcorders that you can get making like entertainment that pleased the entire world out of like picking up stuff you can find in a garage and just being violent with it. 100%. The, the production value of like the first couple of seasons of Jackass is so funny. Like yeah. it is truly just looks like dirt, but it's still very effective. Yeah. You know what's going on on screen. Well, Jackass also has in my mind, like a similarity to like the idea of, sacrificing like your body like touring over many years as a band yes. and like putting in your back and lifting your amp and like being your own roadie all that shit the jackass dudes like sacrifice their bodies like more intensely and in a more concentrated fashion than like any like star that we can think of you know like oh, they're yeah, they sure. made their living on like sacrifice or like injuring themselves it's like that's that's his like 
as blank as or as like straightforward as you can do, like like for a metaphor for like working, like for working. Man, yeah. You know what I mean? Henry Rollins and and Johnny Knoxville, I feel like are kindred spirits, but I don't. I wonder if they would like each other if they met each other. Is Henry Rollins like anybody? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> I feel like Giant Iceville and Henry Rollins have definitely met. One hundred percent. Yeah. Well, yeah. They. I. I don't, I don't think know. We I don't know what there is Henry Rollins is on in Jackass the movie. Oh. He gives. Oh, he gives uh, Stevo a tattoo in the back of a movie. Oh, I remember buggy. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> so he's, he's on board. What was he's the tattoo? What was the tattoo again? It it's a, it's just a simple smiley face. Yeah, but yeah, they're in like yeah. a fucking Humvee yeah, going over like, like dudes. Oh, as hell yeah! It's so gross. Oh my, oh my god. god. <laughs> the skateboarding uh, culture is like very post SST, very Econo culture, like mm-hmm. and like. Yeah. And takes the sort of like youth of punk too. There's like all those movies where it's like Tony Hawk is like a 16 year old like touring around with, like a bunch of other like teenagers like yeah. in, mot- in like motel rooms and shit. And like that's a very I hadn't thought about it, but it's like a very um, through line from like this punk music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Corona jackass. One thing we Any hadn't talked about requests. Oh, well, one thing I hadn't talked about with Corona is that like I don't think we've even used this word yet. Is that like the Minutemen very much are a country band, like a yeah. hard mm-hmm. country funk band that is like technical math rocky. And like and they were talking other- about CCR a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like their like influences. I'm sorry, like, continue, Doug. Other than like new wave music, like country and funk music are like the least punk things in the world. Like mm-hmm. I feel like in the early 80s, like like funky disco-y stuff is like so played out and like so commercialized and like country music is like, that's what my grandpa listens to. And like the fact that like those two things come together to be this punk thing is incredibly subversive. And we, we can't let that, we can't let that go unsaid. I don't know if you were going to note this later, but just speaking of the CCR uh, connection, they uh, got in trouble when they toured with REM for playing an entire set of CCR covers as the the opener because, like, I don't know, they needed to sign like a release or something for the from the road. Oh yeah, they, they, it was like their protest move, wasn't that they they, yeah. they played all CCR? Yeah, hell yeah. Uh, I wonder if it's the same thing with like radio where you can't play like three songs by someone else within an hour without like mm. the express permission of their like rights organization yeah yeah yeah. that's not a condo yeah true no licensing <laughs> is not a condo it's the it's the opposite yeah 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 it's like the minutemen have to like pay bmi like a dollar and 34 cents to playing <laughs> this cover to like 75 people well i mean okay, I, I guess i don't mean the institution of licensing is not a condo because it can be a condo in the sense that it can pay an artist well and allow yeah. them to continue to do stuff. I'm talking about from the perspective, like Doug was saying, of playing songs as a band. You don't want to like pay yeah. for that. Right, right, right. Any any other faves from Double Nickel yeah. that we should can you, get into? Can you play the one called The Glory of Man? That's like my favorite track on this record. Yeah, one second. Let me find it. The track list again. There are like 40 of these goddamn songs. <laughs> of man I work my way backwards using cynicism the time monitor (laughs) the space measurer (laughs) 
as like a like a Talking Heads like man. Gang of Four. Yeah, Gang yeah, of yeah, Four. Man. Exactly. The bomb. Like that D Boone like Skronk is so sick. Like guitar tone is like perfect for this. Like but. yeah, and the like lock groove like funky beat plus the like monotone motoricking bass is yeah. like very like. Uh, European post-punky vibes. Yeah, like Wire or something, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and again, this is the track directly after Corona, which is, like, a weird, like, fucked-up rodeo song. I mean, yeah, it has, like, a straight-up country bass. Like, it's, like, as country as it gets. Yeah. And then they're like, actually, no, we're an English post-punk Yeah, band. like, we're, yeah. we're playing angular, like, intense... <laughs> Like they're, uh, they're gossamer and they're lacerating. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Gossamer lacerating angular riffs. <laughs> <laughs> also, the lyrics starting with the affirmation of man. I work myself backward using cynicism. It's so what? tight. Oh, yeah. That is so fucking sick. Yeah. Flame child. Tom section. Uh-oh. Uh, Georgia. So, like, obviously, we've been talking about Boone and Watt a lot. George Hurley, the drummer, is also insane. Incredible. I was talking about this with Doug because mm-hmm. like, the chapter glosses over him and talks about how he was in the background, a chill guy, like not as yeah. But mm-hmm. dude, like this man would not exist without him. He's he's so essential in every moment. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think just in, like in the writing because so much of the band is so much the dynamic between Boone and Watt. It like makes sense for it to come across that, but musically, it is. It's hilarious that this other third guy who's portrayed as like, yeah, just kind of chill guy along for the ride is like this insane drummer. Yeah, Yeah. powerhouse. And we were like wondering if it's like, is he just like really quiet? Did he want to stay out of it? Did he not want to have a public life? And in a lot of ways, like his sort of footprint is a lot more Econo than D Boone or Mike Watt, who like, have these much more fussy stories. Like he's more yeah. of the like, I was there for the music. I'm not a social punk. Like I yeah, yeah. and like shredding exactly. and then like you don't need to know my fucking story. Yeah. That's totally. pretty Econo. Yeah. I, he's a he's a, a a lunch pail, a lunch pail jammer. I mean I'm sure his story <laughs> is known, but not on the level of like the Mount Rushmore, Boone and Watt, like, you know, yeah, like, like like icons that we can associate with their like their legends, yeah. you know. So, you know, after this, kind of amazingly, uh, Joe Carducci from SST suggested to the band that perhaps they play, you know, slightly longer songs, maybe some more accessible music to get more airplay and more sales. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and as he says, and Watt's instinct to cover his ass is then to ridicule it as Project Mersh. So Project Mersh is an EP that they put out under the guise of like becoming more commercial um should we should we pluck something from that yeah let's just grab king of the hill off this Top of the hill from the rest we 
Definitely hear a little of that like mid '80s production sheen on this, as opposed the to drums the just like, especially. Yeah. yeah, and you can just hear that it's that it's multi-tracked. Just like yeah. the energy is so different, everyone has so much more of a restrained energy. Even though there's like parts that are like more banging, it's just so such more of like a. I don't know. You you, you don't get the sort of feeling we were talking about earlier. The immediacy, the rawness. Yeah. Um, another thing about this album. Is like not only does it sound more polished, uh, but the tracks are long by comparative yeah. standards. And we have tracks that are breaking this three-minute barrier, which is wild to think about. Yeah. <laughs> it's still sick, though. I mean, this is like oh, a yeah. great little soy. Yeah. I, I love those trumpets, too. I mean... It is funny to think, I mean, maybe this is a very cakeish thought, but I'm like, if you do add a fourth inter- instrument to the Minuteman, it, it kind of like makes sense for it to be trumpet. Then they like would have been like <laughs> way more ska popular or yeah. scopular, if you will. Scopular for sure. <laughs> but I just, I feel I get it because it's like, I feel like they did, I, I get that sense it, of like, it, it, know, like cuts, it cuts through the mix. Yeah, for sure. It's like, yeah. it's, it's audible over the interplay that's going on. This is one that we will see to the end because there's uh, because it's over three minutes and who has time for that? <laughs> yeah, I'm busy. Um, so yeah, they 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 put out Project Merch um, and then they are hit up by uh, some long-haired guy uh, named Michael Stipe <laughs> <laughs> who wants uh, Minutemen to open for REM on tour. Uh, it seems like everyone but the band hated them. <laughs> like the bit, like I mean, that can't feel good if like you go on tour and you know that you've got like the band on your side and like literally everyone else who's producing it can't stand you, uh, leading to the aforementioned uh, Credence Clearwater uh, re- rebellion. <laughs> um, Clearwater Rebellion, the sequel band. <laughs> I also like. It, I thought it was really funny that they literally did not know who REM was, and when pressed on that, because you at that point they were pretty big for an independent band uh mike watt uh responds and he says ostriches <laughs> we were we only knew bands if we played with them which is again kind of remarkable is like they were they were very like tunnel vision in a way of you know who who they were working with and what they were maybe exposed to in a way well i also feel like if you're if you, your lifestyle involves so much touring and playing with so many bands that that is more than enough musical stimulation for you. That's all you want to listen to. I mean, maybe in the car you put on Credence, for example, or something. You know? <laughs> but like, I I doubt that they were listening to the radio because they had a radio every night. You know what I mean? Like, uh, right. Uh, and furthermore, like, if you're in LA, is the college radio station playing REM? REM is way more southeastern, east coasty. Did REM play in San Francisco? Or rather, in Los Angeles? Like, is a question, and, like, mm-hmm. and the answer's probably yes, but it's, like, I, I can totally, it's very relatable to me as, like, a label dude to be, like, tunnel vision-y <laughs> and, like, not know about, like, an emerging band that might be, like, pretty big. Yeah. Like, um, 
Yep. Like I could imagine like someone having to be like, this is parquet courts. Like check it out. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like it's, and I'm like, I don't know. It's uh, it's really easy to, to, to see how that's a thing. Yeah. Yep. Um, so they put out, they, they go on this kind of disastrous tour. They put out what, uh, Azared says is just like a, a sluggish and underdeveloped album called three way tie for last, which again, great, great album title. And they're kind of in like a little bit of a slump. I think five of the 16 songs on the album were covers. Like they're just kind of like under, uh, underwritten, under rehearsed, under prepared, um, probably because they were burnt out after, you know, five years of, of grinding, perhaps. This is also around the time when one of the most hilarious, like rough waters substance problems that we've encountered happen, which is they say like D Boone is like, he's smoking maybe a little too much weed and like having one beer too many. I mean, it's, it's very a genteel. Suffering. It's very genteel. And like, apparently, you know, Watt goes up to him and is like, Hey man, maybe you could, you need to cool it a little. And he's like, okay. And it stops. And that's the end of that story. <laughs> that's tight. I like, like, that. like imagine if Anthony Kiedis was like maybe dabbling a little bit in drugs. And then someone was like, maybe. Anthony, stop it. Like, just, uh, just don't do it. And he's like, totally. Sorry. You're right. <laughs> you're right. I'm in. And then he just, uh, all right. he's a jerk yeah. like, Time to refocus on the band. Just like total, total <laughs> humility and like just like acknowledgement of his like excess right. or something. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Imagine. Um, yeah, that 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 happened as well. And so the band was uh, kind of in not you know not like a a downswing, but just sort of like a a plateau. Um, but they were preparing to I think record a, a new album. And then D Boone died in a car accident. He was riding in the back of a van that his girlfriend was driving, wasn't wearing a seatbelt. A uh, girlfriend fell asleep at the wheel, flipped the car, and he was thrown out of the car and died instantly. And it's just like one of the biggest tragedies in like music, maybe. Yeah. Ever. Low key. Yeah. It was, it's, it's important to mention that it was the Minutemen tour van. That's the vehicle he mm-hmm. maintained, is the one, the ship he went down in. It's really sad. It's really, really yeah. sad. That's like oh, that's like hard to even say. It's an incredibly like, like it, it's total freak accident. Uh, total accident. It happens extremely suddenly. The band had so much more potential in them. I mean, the way that it described it is like, yeah, maybe the last thing wasn't as good, but they were. It, that was right in the middle when they were doing the um the ballot thing where they were trying to like put out this massive live compilation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just stopped. End. That's the end of the band. Yeah. Yep. Total, total tragedy. Um, and Mike Watt, he basically, you know, he he doesn't play bass for like over a year. Like he's just in total, you know, grief mode. He shared a, kind of an amazing story. Uh, he said the night after he got the news that D Boone died, he had a dream about Boone. Uh, I'm in a bank lobby 10 feet from him and he's studying this big rectangular painting and it's got like six or seven Abe Lincolns in it and they're like Peter Max Abe Lincoln heads with a big stovepipe hat and the beard but in psychedelic colors and I'm thinking this is so fucked up I have to tell him he's dead and he can't be here anymore and I know why I had to tell him he was dead because D Boone was such a fucking fierce dude I don't think he knew he was dead and, uh, mm. yeah it's rough I mean, yeah. in like the most non corny way possible, you get really get the sense reading about them that Boone and Watt were like a part of each other, uh, mm-hmm. in like the the most way that dudes can be friends. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and it's 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 really tough, but that's also, I mean, as cool as they were together, that's also one of the things that makes Watt so cool is that he has had this continued legacy of being a real one, 
mm-hmm. uh, for the next, you know, last 35 years and went on to have a number of other projects, including Fire Hose, or as I like to say, Fire Hose. Yeah, uh, totally. <laughs> which also rocks. Yeah, um, for sure. And has done his radio show and he's promoted so many other uh, bands and, and worked with so many other cool people. And I guess he's in a band with Minuteman Drummer and Johnny Masses now. I've not seen really? this band. Yeah. What are they called? Come on, Discogs. Don't fail me now. <laughs> Hell yeah. Watts played bass with everyone. He, he played bass with like the Stooges when they like reunited. I feel like he is like a, a very capable, like not only in his own bands, but like as like a, as like a basis for other various projects for sure. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's the fucking man. Yeah. He is, he is a, uh, he is a bass master, a bass machine. Yeah. Oh, another, what, one last little detail about Watt is that Azred kind of <clears throat> gently, uh, implies that he is the origin of flannel shirts being associated. Oh with yeah. Music. I remember that. <laughs> yes. Cause yes, his yes. signature style is like wearing, it was like flannel shirts at, at concerts. Which I get, but also very hot. I, I imagine he was very sweaty by the end of his shows. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that that was also like either like not directly, but like maybe one step removed from like the Kurt Cobain like direct influence because like he loved the Minutemen, knew about them, right? Like, yeah, of course. Yeah, like it, it makes sense. The pipeline from Watt to like Seattle to like Urban Outfitters is like is like pretty direct, you know. <laughs> I pulled them into uh, this band. They're called Unknown Instructors, and they put out a 2019 <laughs> album. And it's um, Mike Watt, George Hurley, Johnny Massis, and then like some other peeps that may or may not be famouses. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's listen to to close this out. To do a little, where are they now? Because we'll we'll come to Jay Massis in a, in a few. Yeah. Uh, here's something from Unknown Instructors. Not vouched by any of us. Yeah, this is totally going in, going in totally wrong. Sounds like fish. <laughs> in the in the long term, everything just converges on fish. If you play get together long enough, <laughs> that if I live twice, she'll clutch her son so close to her breast, I lose my breath. Kind of has a Santana vibe. <laughs> watching this is definitely a jam band yeah Yeah. they're jamming but you know she'll clutch her son here we go so close to her breast I love my breast so close to her breast I lose my breast just watching I dreamt of a real experience well you know I'm, I'm glad they're all still playing yeah for sure that's amazing to think mm-hmm. about. Um, I do want to ask you guys just maybe one or two questions about Halzu, but before we move on, any any final Watt thoughts or uh, Minutemen thoughts? I mean, obviously these guys are legends, but the whole their whole ethos and uh, and the Weejam Akano thing is just very important to me, and I think it's something it's it's just good advice, you know. Yeah. One thing that like really stands out to me throughout the way that they present themselves that's like central is like. You know, a lot of like what we consider to be like canonical punk is like rejecting like authority in a very vague, like kind of like straw man fashion, you know, where it's like we reject authority. We're we're not listening to the government. We're not like like we're Mm -hmm. like anarchy vibe. But I feel like the Minutemen actually rejected authority in a way that 
that mattered to them. Like, like they were their mm-hmm. own, they had their own like jobs. They didn't have bosses other than maybe like the SST, but that was like their peers. They weren't like their bosses. Like they created a lifestyle for themselves in which they could be their own boss in, in a way mm-hmm. that was like extremely early on and that even being possible and saying be your own boss is like a bad way to put it because it like, it like negates the, the need for a boss, you know, like, or, yeah. or the, the hierarchy of like, of like the working like world that is like corporate, so to speak, or like leads you through your career, you know, it's not even being like your own boss. It's like having your own world that like you've created in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, um, I think just like the lasting power of, of this band is that like, they really show a roadmap to like long-term sustainability as a band. They weren't able to actually do it, but they show this roadmap of like how, how to do it all yourself and how to not take orders from anyone and how to learn how to operate everything yourself and not count on other people, which is Mm -hmm. really important. Like this idea that like no one is going to discover you. You have to, put in the time and effort and grind it out. And if you want to do your own highly personal thing, like you better have a bunch of other skills or learn how to do many, many other things. Cause no one is going to help you. And unless you have infinite money, you're going to be fucked. Yeah, totally. Well, maybe that's a good segue because I did want to ask you guys, I mean, you get asking you to revisit the Miniman specifically in the R band scene in general, like, and, and you guys run a label. Um, you know, a smaller label, uh, though growing seemingly all the time. I, I saw that you had a, your own little mi- milestone the other day by the first time you had seen have a, a record store have your own individual <laughs> oh, like yeah. record tab in the, the stacks to show where all the House Who Mountain discs were. The, yeah. the, the divider in the, in, in like yeah. the LP bin. Yeah, for sure. So I was just kind of wondering what resonated with you out of this is like still the same and what you think is kind of new or different about how you go, you go about doing your work. Obviously I guess the big diff thing would be the internet, but you know, I'd be curious to hear what you, you think. One comment really quick that like stuck out was that one walk quote where he says you build your own fiefdom and mm-hmm. like just that word is so like evocative and like useful. Cause it's like that, that could like embody like a social media network, a network of collaborators, a community of shows and spaces that you play in. And that's something that me and Doug have been building and, you know, exploring. Yeah. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, everything is the same. And in a lot of ways, like everything is like totally different. One thing we were remarking on is this whole sort of fanzine culture becomes the blogosphere, which Mm -hmm. just goes away. It like, like the amount of like music blogs that are now compared to 10 years ago when we were working at WNUR is there's like no comparison. And it's like people have playlists, people have podcasts now, but like the, the, there isn't really this, like this writing community that's nearly as impassioned. It's still there, of course, but it's like everyone can be a writer thing. I feel like is kind of gone now, which is very strange. And everything beyond the internet is, is a very um, it's, it made me a little sad when I read this book because it's like, that's a conceit that Max and I made when we started it off. We're like, if we're going to be releasing music, that's this weird. We have to be 
more URL than IRL because there's no physical location with enough freaks to like sustain <laughs> this. So we need to find the freaks that are in all the different places. And the only way we can do that is through the internet. I think that in the early eighties, when you only have like, when you have a much smaller amount of these independent uh, media companies that are putting out these independent things, then there's a more of um, a homogeneity in the scene where like the Minutemen can have like an audience of like 400 people through this sort of like back channel network. But like, there's so much more competition now because it mm-hmm. worked then. And these communities just shrink and shrink into these smaller and smaller sub communities. That is interesting. And it is like, yeah, I, I get that idea that because of the success of, of building an indie scene in general, there are now a thousand indie scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 10,000 indie scenes that all can operate in the a similar way, but smaller. And, and another thing that, that Max and I were talking about that I just kind of think is, is interesting about like what we do versus what, what was happening then. Um, and then in, in the book, they were just talking about Ronald Reagan and like the oppressive, like conservative politics that, um, that sort of birthed this scene. And we started in the Obama era, which is like mm-hmm. just such a different vibe like the very optimistic time. Most of what we release is apolitical. Most of what we release is instrumental. Um, and most of like what we pay attention to in our community is that way. And I wonder if that's like, um, that's a product of just like the political time that we were born into. Uh, we were talking about that in regards to uh, the the party rock movement with LMFAO because I'm getting ob- obsessed with LMFAO Sick. right now <laughs> as uh, the turn of the the decade, like Obama era um, kind of like optimism uh, thing that yeah the that idea I mean also remember like when Trump got elected in 2016 everyone's like well at least the music is gonna that's gonna come out of this time is gonna be really good and like it I feel like that didn't really happen well you know when I, when I think about like the role of a band in in the time period in which the Minutemen were ascending they had more of like I don't want to say responsibility but they had like a role that was maybe more of like a, like a, a source of information or a, a, like a cultural like touchstone for people that were listeners. Right. It's like, they mm. didn't necessarily have alternative means of like gathering political information. So it's like having a political, like socially active, like, like lyrical foundation as a band made put them in that role. Whereas now it's like, you know, we release instrumental music not because we don't, we aren't political people, but because that's what we focus on. And there's a million political avenues that you could explore if you wanted to be involved in that world outside well, of music, you know, outside yeah. of like, outside of like a band that, that delivers political, you know, information to you. It's like, you don't need that. You got a million other, you know, not that you don't need that, but you can know so much without that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like if D Boone could have tweeted his thoughts, would the Minutemen oh have D-Boon's been on an instrumental sure. band? Like the <laughs> lyrics, I mean, they, they talk about them more in these like spiel like things. Yeah, yeah. Like the lyrics are more like these just like thought clouds. And some of them are more songular, but other songs are just like a rant. And like, mm-hmm. do you think he would have just ranted and had these long tweets where it's like one out of three, two out of three, three out of three. And then the song <laughs> becomes like just this sick instrumental thing, which clearly they wrote the instrumental thing song before (laughs) they put the lyrics on top of it. Mm -hmm. Like, um, do you need to like 
to sing your political song if you can just like put it on Twitter for your fans and then just like make the thing. So it's like it's um it's just so different. And I just so want to clarify really quick. I'm not saying that there's no political music now and that that doesn't have a role because obviously there's tons of that in various you know places in society and different cultural groups. Like you know there's there's so much politics and music everywhere. I just mean from our perspective, maybe. Yeah, that's just less of what yeah. we work on and less of like what we see sure. in our tunnel vision community where we've never heard of REM before. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the one thing I'll say about Minutemen in politics is uh, the thing that he was doing, that Boone was doing with all those lyrics, I think one way that resonates with me is that you don't need to necessarily like learn something from them or like gather information, but I think one of the values of it, and this resonates with me with the other show that I work on, is I think that there is value in just hearing somebody say something similar to what you think and being like, I'm glad that I'm not alone, yeah. uh, that I'm not isolated in this, that these thoughts don't make me crazy because somebody else out there is thinking something similar and is like taking the time and effort to like put them out there in, uh, I don't, I don't want to pump up my other project too much, but you know, a, uh, artistic way, uh, or a passionate way or something. And, and I think that there is a value of even just creating that mental lattice work to be like, all right, this is the, the these are, are valid thoughts to have, uh, in this realm and the fact that there are other people out there doing it is, you know, uh, uh, makes me feel better about the way that I might think about it. Yeah. Uh, and especially for those Boone type lyrics where they're just like blunt into the fact and like funny all the time. And you're, and you're just like, Hey, you know what sucks, man, America and central America. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Molly, do you have any final thoughts? If not, we can, I got, I got nothing. Great. I'm spent. Well, let's move confidently into the end part of this episode. Max and Doug, thank you very much for coming. Uh, thank plug you. your shit. Where can people find Housing Mountain things? What should they be looking out for? Doug, go um, ahead, my man. Well, uh, you can find us on all social media platforms Houseu Mountain, H A U S U Mountain, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, but mostly Bandcamp. Um, oh yeah, Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. I don't know when this podcast is going to come out. What do you think? Like March two, two, two-ish weeks. Okay, so uh, we have a new album coming out from Prolapse, which is a New York-based duo. Uh, Matt from the band Machine Girl and Bonnie from Kill Alters. It's an 120-minute album that's like totally bonkers, progressive dance music. Like if the Minutemen, cool. if the Minutemen got to cyborg all their rock genres, like dance music it might be like this and it's also also kind of confrontational also pretty punk noise bizarro but um we mostly work on electronic music uh mostly stuff that is equally like celebratory as it is like kind of challenging or cerebral um we got like monthly releases usually Uh, we got a new one coming from max after that collaborating with a local chicago rapper um Sharkula, who is kind of like a, <laughs> Hell yeah. um, like a just Max, you go ahead for a moment. Uh, yeah, Sharkula is like a Chicago institution. Like, you know, he's been rapping and involved in underground hip hop for like 25 plus years, probably, and is, is like a widely known like figure in Chicago, like kind of like street culture and show culture and, you know, like the art scene. But he and I 
made an album together a couple of years ago. We're making our second album now. It's coming out in April. I made all the beats and his, he rapped verses that were, <laughs> okay, so, hold on. So, we got to back up a little. Okay, so he, the, his style is like very live and like one take focused. And he, you know, like raps and delivers his words in a way that's kind of like a freestyle, but it's not freestyle. It's not off the dome. Like he has like written things he refers to in shapes in the song. His style is just more of this like free Loose, associative, yeah. like psychedelic, like style. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Like no verses and choruses, very linear and like narrative, and it matches our labels kind of vibe really well in that it is more structure, uh, rejecting structure or convention, and being pretty, you know, out there, tripped out, like you know, psychedelic, uh, psychedelic structured hip hop. Yeah, Psychedelically structured hip hop, yeah, for sure, definitely. I will. Uh, I'll include some links to all of these things in the show notes. Uh, and I mean, God, Molly, I was going to ask if you have anything to plug, but, uh, oh, is your alternative digest thing going to be out by then? Um, maybe, uh, uh the one plug I did yesterday, it. well, there, there's, there's a, there's a backlog at this point. I've been making videos for the alternative in a series called the details. I interview artists and talk about the nitty gritty fun shit that happened when they wrote and recorded their albums. Um, right now I have episodes out with Jariah, who is the future of pop punk. Get with it. Uh, Death Valley Girls, who uh, Bonnie from Death Valley Girls is absolutely incredible. And Ziemba, who made this insane like power pop rock album that everyone should get to know. So find that on the YouTubes. The details, the alternative dot dot com slash backslash HTTPS. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I have a billion <laughs> projects in the work, but I can't tell you about any of them yet. So for now, I was, oh, awesome. you're so, wow, you're, so wow. you're so sick, man. How do you uh, do it? Uh, yes, roast me, roast me. It makes I was not going to roast. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, uh, uh, watch this space for me. Uh, but we've got. 11 more of these Our Band Could Be Your Life episodes coming out in quick succession. Uh, thank you for sticking with us for this. Keep your eyes on Twitter's at and intro pod for more information uh, or send us an email at andintroducingpod at gmail.com. Our SoundCloud is, as always, at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod. Uh, but until then, Mr. Narrator, this is Bob Dylan to me. Our band could be your life. Real names be proved. Me and Mike Watt, we played for years. Punk rock changed our lives. We learned punk rock in Hollywood. Drove up from Pedro. Dogs. We'd go drink and pogo. My story could be his songs. I 
are his soldier child. Our band of scientists rock. When I was E. Bloom and Richard Hell, Joe Strummer and John Doe, me and Mike Watt playing a guitar.